We can celebrate the joy of the Lord's birth together. And joy is the theme that we have been walking through these last few weeks. We began a series at the end of November called Joy to the World. And in this series, we have been reflecting on this popular theme in our Christmas songs. It's a, it's a theme that we've been exploring over the last few weeks and will lead us straight up into our Christmas Eve service. And as I was reflecting this week just on Christmas in general, it, it struck me that it, it sits at an interesting place in our calendar. Christmas comes at the end of a year, and so it naturally sort of draws our minds backwards. We reflect on all that has taken place in the last year, but it sits at the end of a year, and so naturally it draws our minds forward towards what's next. It's with this in mind that we asked you all, what what are some of your favorite Christmas memories? As we come to Christmas of 2020, what are are some things that your mind goes back to in Christmas's past that, that bring you joy? Clay Evers mentioned that one of his favorite Christmas memories is fondue dinners with his wife's family on Christmas Eve after church. Neri Alonzo remembers waking up when she was a child to the sound of Spanish Christmas music and her dad setting up the tripod in front of the tree to take pictures as they opened presents. And if her family was anything like my family, that took place at about 5 a.m. because me and my brother couldn't sit in bed any longer. We didn't sleep at all on Christmas Eve, and so finally our parents conceded and would get out of bed and let us open presents before the sun rose. By the way, that didn't change even into adulthood. (laughs) So old habits die hard. Uh, Fontaine remembers going with her family to her grandmother's house to celebrate Christmas, and I think many of us have such memories of being with our family in this important season. I know for me, Christmas calls my mind back to about a 20-year tradition in my home. Uh, My Aunt Mary served here about a, a decade ago as the children's pastor. My mom was serving in the children's ministry at the time. She's now the children's pastor. My brother, myself, my cousins Ben and Lydia, we all volunteered here. So Christmas Eve has always been a work day in my house. We, we have been every Christmas Eve at Bay Life Church for hours before the first service started. But every night growing up, after services were done, after everything was packed up, we would go to my Aunt Mary and Uncle John's house in Riverview. And my Uncle Jono would cook steak. It was like the only time in the year that I ate steak, and I'm gonna offend someone in the room, but I'm more of a hamburger guy. I feel like hamburger is just more efficient than steak. You can get salad in there, you can get cheese in there, you get your protein and you get your carbs. Steak is just kind of a a one-trick pony. But it was great to eat steak on Christmas once a year with my family. The other thing that we would do, especially when we were in elementary school, is that we would take the family camcorder, my my brother, my cousins, and I, and we would recreate our own version of the Charles Dickens classic, A Christmas Carol. And so we would take the baby powder, and we would turn my brother into the ghost of Jacob Marley, and then we would take all of the old clothes from our grandparents, and we would dress my cousin Ben up as Scrooge, and he would walk around with a cane and and hit all of the people because he was grumpy and he hated Christmas. And we would film this on the camcorder every single year, and on Christmas Eve, we would force our family to watch it. And we did this even into adulthood, and then my cousin Ben went on to do stunt work in Marvel movies, so he never stopped making movies. But even now, it's been 10 years since we were all together on Christmas Eve at that house in Riverview, and I can't help but think back to what took place back then. 
course, Christmas also stands at the beginning of a new year. And so it draws our minds forward. We can't ever help but think of what lies ahead, even as we look back. And all of this converges in the Christmas season on this theme of joy. Even in our wider secular culture, we talk about joy in the season of Christmas, but so often the joy that our wider culture talks about during this season, it it has little in common with the way that the Bible speaks of joy. For our atheists and secular friends and family members, the the joy comes from being with people you love or, or getting the gift that you want. It is an emotional response to having your desires met. But as we've been exploring this theme of joy in this series, you might remember that Mark and I have both kind of referenced a a lecture from a New Testament scholar named N.T. Wright where he talks about the biblical understanding of joy. It's, It's not so much an emotional response to getting what we want, but it's a way of viewing the world that is informed by God's saving actions. Joy is not just a feeling we get but it's a way of approaching all of reality that keeps in mind who God is and what he's done and what he will do. Christmas, it seems, stands at the overlap of the ages. We can't help but think about the years that have gone by, and we can't help but think about the years that are coming our way. And this, I think, if we approach it as Christians, can fuel joy. But for now, all of this sounds kind of mystical and ethereal. I hope it'll make more sense as we spend some time in God's word. So if you have a Bible, do me a favor and open to the book of Psalms, chapter 98. And let me read our text for us this morning before we step into it. Would you hear God's word? It says this. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the king, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. The world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Now this psalm, unlike many of the other psalms, and even the psalm that we read earlier in worship, doesn't give us much context. We don't know who wrote this passage of scripture and we don't know why they wrote this passage of scripture. Technically speaking, it's anonymous. But this anonymous psalmist calls us to praise God joyfully in song. It's interesting, when when you work through the Psalms and really through the rest of Scripture on the whole, there are consistent calls to praise God, to, to lift up his name, to lift up a shout of joy. But what you'll notice throughout the narrative of Scripture is that we're never called to praise God for no reason. The Bible always calls us to praise God in response to his character, 
to his creation, to his salvation, to his faithfulness. There's an endless list of reasons that we would magnify the Lord both in song and in our lives. And so the Bible always sets this standard. Here is what God has done, sing in response to it. Here is what God has done, worship him in response to it. Lift up the Lord because he has done this. And in Psalm 98, the psalmist gives us a source for celebration. He, he says this, sing to the Lord a new song because he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. Now the term, or the terms, God's right hand and his holy arm appear most often in the Bible in the book of Exodus. Uh, Some scholars and theologians have pointed out that when they looked at ancient decrees of the pharaohs, the pharaoh would often talk about his mighty arm. And so it's God almost making fun of the pharaoh in Exodus saying, I stretch out my mighty arm and I deliver my people and you can stretch out your mighty arm and it's not gonna do anything. But whenever this mighty arm, this right hand of the Lord appears, it, it often refers to his victory in battle to his defense of his people in the face of their enemies, his protection and care for those he loves. When the psalm was written, it was likely calling God's people's minds back to the Exodus, probably written sometime during the exile. So the psalmist says, look back. Look back at what God has done. Reflect back on God's saving action, on God's deliverance. Think about that. Don't think about what's going on right now. Think about what God has done and let that fuel how you celebrate and rejoice in the Lord now. You know, one of the most frequent calls in scripture is to remember. It's probably not the most frequent. I think the most frequent command in the Bible is actually fear not, which says something about us as human beings that we constantly have to be reminded. But close Two, fear not, is the command, remember. It's, it's implanted in the way we even celebrate the Lord's Supper. Do this in remembrance of me. And it occurs again and again and again in the Bible. Remember the work of the Lord. Remember what he's done. Remember how he saved you. Don't forget, bind it to your foreheads and to your hands and to your heart. Teach it to your children. Never forget. Why does this occur over and over again? Because we forget because we are deeply forgetful people. I used to serve here in the college and career ministry at our church, and during that time, there was kind of a a handful of guys that I would meet with on a consistent basis or semi-consistent basis just to catch up on life and and see how I could be praying for them and, and encouraging them as they pursued the Lord. And without fail, I would always run into a handful of them on a Thursday night when we did college and career ministry. And I would always say to them, hey, we should catch up this week. Do me a favor, send me a text and let me know what your schedule is. And then I would follow that up with, don't stop texting me until I respond. And the reason was because what often happened is I would get that text at like 8.20 in the morning when I'm getting in my car to get ready to head to work, but I live about 30 minutes away from here and I listen to my podcasts on double speed. So by the time I got to work, I'd finished like 15 podcasts and I had completely wiped my mind of all of the commitments that I had. 
Or I would get the text when I got here to work and I'd be going into a meeting and that meeting would last for 45 minutes and we'd talk about the next couple months of ministry and by the time I'd gotten all wound up about what was coming up, I forgot what I'd committed to in that moment and so I would say, text me again and again and again, not because I want 400 unread text messages on my phone, but because if you do not do that, through no malicious intent on my part, I won't remember. Thank God that they've changed the the Gmail structure to where on emails it'll say, it's been six days since you received this, would you like to respond? Like that is a godsend for me because I'm just as bad with emails as I am with texts. Now maybe you're better at that stuff than I am, but all of us in some way or another are forgetful. That's why we set reminders on our phone. That's why we have planners and yet it's, it's not just in the simple things that we are forgetful. It's in the things that most matter. How many times have, have we come to a trial or a tribulation or a difficulty and we've forgotten how God was faithful to us in the previous one and we think he'll abandon us in the present one? We forget. We are deeply, deeply forgetful. And so the psalmist calls God's people to remember his redemptive work, to think back to what God has done. And and don't just think back to what he's done, but let that truth inhabit the presence of the, or inhabit the present. Carry it on your lips in song. Let it ring in your ears through melody because he knows that remembering God's faithfulness will produce joy, that it will ground our joy in something more permanent than the fleeting tyranny of the moment. Remembering God's salvation in the past produces joy in the present. This is why Israel is constantly making monuments. Probably my favorite comes in 1 Samuel 7.12. Israel wins this decisive victory against the Philistines with God's help. And Samuel the prophet sets about the task of making a monument so that they will never forget God's help. And he names this monument Ebenezer, not to be confused with the character from A Christmas Carol. Ebenezer roughly translates to stone of help. Other translations say the Lord has brought us thus far. The idea was that whenever an Israelite would pass by this stone, they would look at it and go, I remember when God helped us back then. He'll be with us now. We all need Ebenezer stones in our lives because without them we forget. Christmas is such an Ebenezer stone. It is a towering monument in our calendar to God's past faithfulness. Because whether we've called it to remembrance at all during the rest of the year, at least once a year as we pass through Christmas, we are reminded of the beating heart of Christianity, the incarnation of the word, the irreversible fact that God became man for us and for our sake. In the words of the psalmist, that he has made known his salvation and revealed his righteousness. The psalmist says this looking back on the first exodus. We as the church can sing this looking back on the second exodus led by the greater Moses, Jesus, as he carries carries us out not from under the tyranny of Pharaoh, but the tyranny of sin and death. And we remember, we reflect on it so that we can have joy in this moment knowing that the God who was faithful to us back then will be faithful to us now. That is the sort of God whose faithfulness we can rely on if we'll only remember. But the psalmist has more to say. 
He, he goes on, he says, make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises with the lyre, with the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the king, the Lord, let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it, let the rivers clap their hands and sing for joy. For the Lord, he comes to judge the earth. The psalmist starts by calling on God's people to remember what God has done and sing for joy. And then he begins to to call on all of creation. He calls on the rivers to clap their hands, metaphorically, because rivers don't have hands. He calls on the sea to roar. He calls on all peoples from all nations to celebrate. And this is a reminder, I think, for us, because so often we forget we get so, so busy in the hustle and bustle of our day-to-day life that we forget to reflect and celebrate and magnify the glory and the power and the goodness and the righteousness of the Lord. But, but you should know this, creation never forgets. Creation never forgets. At this very moment, every ocean on every planet, in every solar system of every galaxy, in the vast expanse of our cosmos, is roaring the glory of the Lord. Shame on us if we forget. Because God didn't die on the cross to save the oceans. He died on the cross to save people in his image. And yet creation which will be redeemed only through the extent of the work of Christ, cries out even when the people whose image was born by the very Son of God forget. But there's something important to notice about how and why creation cries out. Let the rivers clap their hands, let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. So so first, the psalmist says, look back. Look back on God's saving action and and let that ground your joy. And then he says, look forward. Look forward to God's coming judgment and let that ground your joy. Now, I guarantee you that didn't sit as right with us as the first half because there's something about the, the judgment of God that in many ways makes us uncomfortable. It doesn't fuel in us any sort of joy. It maybe fuels in us some dread or maybe even some embarrassment. It's a sticking point for a lot of people. A couple years ago, I was taking an apologetics class in seminary, and if you've never heard that word before, apologetics is kind of a fancy way of describing the the defense of the Christian faith. And so apologetics tries to answer questions that people might have about Christianity or even objections. And generally speaking, Apologetics books and podcasts and debates, they all focus around a handful of the same questions. Does God exist? Can miracles happen? Can we trust the Bible? Do science and faith contradict each other? This is kind of the bread and butter of this field of theology. And as we were going over the syllabus for the semester, the the professor pointed out that we were going to tackle all of these things. How can we know God exists? How can we know we can trust the Bible? How can we know that miracles can take place? What, what do we do with the, the, the debate between science and faith over human origins? But at the end of that, he, he sort of put the syllabus down and he said, no, I want to tell you something and, and maybe this will get me in trouble. All of these questions are important. All of these questions are things that you as, as future ministers need to know the answer to. But you should know that your average non-Christian doesn't care about any of these things. 
because studies are, are, are coming out asking the unchurched and the de-churched, the, the people who have walked away from Christianity or were never Christians in the first place, what is your chief objection to the Christian faith? And none of it has to do with any of those questions. It all revolves around issues of human sexuality and it revolves around the issue of Christians being judgmental. That is the biggest objection that our friends and neighbors have if the surveys can be trusted. And so naturally, we hear that our friends and neighbors are afraid of the idea of God's judgment and our judgmentalism, and we think that the way to solve that is to paper it over, to, to, to minimalize it at best and outright ignore it at worst, or to say things like God is love and love doesn't judge, therefore neither does God. But the Bible actually holds out God's judgment as a source of hope and joy for all of creation. Why is that? How is that? I, I would argue that, that the ability to conjure up a God who does not judge is the distinct result of privileged coffee shop theology. It, it can only be done by people who are doing theology in coffee shops detached from the real suffering and evil in the world. It's a distinctively Western approach to doing theology. Let me explain what I mean by that. My wife and I, we manage our church's podcast called The Stone Table. And in many ways, it's, it's a great avenue for us to interact with some of our favorite theologians and authors and pastors and artists about what it means to follow Jesus in this day and age in their particular context. And the first two episodes we released about a year ago were with uh, a man named Celestin Musakura, who we partner with here at the church. Celestin heads up a ministry called ALARM, which stands for African Leadership and Reconciliation Ministries. Celestin, through his organization and, and in partnership with Baylife, trains pastors in Africa helps teach them theology so that they can be equipped to go and serve their congregations. Celestin himself was born in Rwanda and converted to Christianity in his teens through someone sharing the gospel with him. And if you know anything about the last 30 years of Rwanda's history, you know that, that one of the, the bleakest points was what has come to be known as the Rwandan Genocide. And in the conversation, Celestin sort of unpacked all of the political nuance that led to this event. But, but here's what's important for our conversation. Over the course of 100 days in the 90s in Rwanda, over a million people were massacred, mostly Tutsis, a, a tribe that was opposed by the Hutus. And Celestin lost in this massacre five members of his own family between the events of those 100 days and the years of fallout. Many of them were massacred by militias in their village, but God had gripped his heart with a vision to see the church rise up and serve as a force for justice and restoration, even in the face of this evil. And so over the years, he counseled Dozens upon dozens upon dozens of pastors, pastors whose church doors were kicked open on a Sunday morning and their congregation slaughtered in front of them. And he, he counseled dozens upon dozens of Christians who lost fathers, mothers, sisters, brothers, hacked to pieces by machetes. And the question that he'll tell you that was most 
prominent in all of these conversations was, where is God's justice? Where is the justice of God in the face of this evil? Let me ask you, what answer does our coffee shop theology of God who never judges give these people? It doesn't give an answer. Because the promise of God's judgment, in some sense, is not for millennial hipsters to sit in a coffee shop and scoff at. It is for grieving widows who've lost their husbands to genocide. And it may make us uncomfortable in our minimalist, air-conditioned, locally sourced, artisanal bistros, but for these people, these people who have faced evil, they desperately need to know that evil will not go unanswered. And a God that does not judge evil is not a source of comfort for us when we come face to face with it. When nearly a million Tutsis are massacred by their neighbors in a genocide, when 21 Coptic Christians are beheaded on the beaches of Libya, when 1.6 million people die in a pandemic globally, when the ugly sin of racism rears its head, when husbands abuse their wives and domineer over them, when fathers abandon their children, thank God he doesn't play by our judgment-free coffee shop philosophy rules. But instead, he stands against evil and he condemns it in truth. Contrary to how it might feel to us initially conditioned by enlightenment philosophy, it's good news because it means that evil doesn't go unanswered. It means that even though we might not know what tomorrow will bring, we know that at the end of all things, truth and beauty and goodness will be vindicated. In the words of Martin Luther King, the moral arc of the universe is bent towards justice because it rests in the hands of a just judge. And the supreme example for us of God's justice, his mercy, and his judgment is the cross itself. Because on Calvary, God judges sin. And at the same time, he justifies the ungodly who would turn from their sin in faith and believe the gospel of Jesus. So the psalmist invites all of creation to sing for joy that the God of all justice will judge the world justly and set things right because he knows that anticipating God's justice provides hope for the future and joy for the present. This psalm was written hundreds of years before the birth of Christ. And yet I can't help but think that it is a fitting song to consider as we approach the culmination of the Christmas season. Because in this season, God's people find themselves suspended, like the people of Israel who originally read this psalm, suspended between two great sources of joy, two reasons to sing. We sing for joy because God has delivered his people in the incarnation of his son. When the word became flesh and dwelt among us, he carried our grief, he dealt with our sin on the cross, and that should produce joy in this moment as we reflect back on that once for all sacrifice. But our joy is not just rooted in the past. And perhaps this is why the Advent season that Christians celebrate traditionally also anticipates the second coming. Our joy has a future reference 
Just as surely as Jesus was born in a stable in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. And the knowledge of God will cover the earth as the water covers the sea. So Christmas stands at this overlap of the ages, at the end of one year and the beginning of another. It's not just Christmas that does that. Christians do that. We stand at the overlap of the ages with joy that is rooted in the past, steady in the present, and certain in the future. Not because of anything that we've done, but because of what Christ has done and will do when he comes again. So this year, as we hurtle towards Christmas, I pray that God would give you the grace to look back at the events of Bethlehem. Let it inform your present. But may you also have the grace to remember that that same Jesus who came in humility in Bethlehem will come again in glory to decisively judge and conquer sin and death and the devil. And in all of these things, may you be filled with joy as you face the world in light of what God has done and will do. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so grateful that you call us to a joy that's not rooted in our own strength. It's not rooted in our own might or in our own power, but it rests in the strong hands of the Son of God. God, we thank you that that you give us a joy in the present that's rooted by what you've done in the past and what you will do in the future. As we come to this season of Christmas, as we come to celebrate the birth of Christ, fill our hearts with joy, joy unceasing, so that we might face your world in light of your actions and your saving grace. Make us a people who share the good news of that gospel with others, we ask in Christ Jesus' matchless name, and we say amen. Bailey, thank you so much for joining us. We can't wait to celebrate Christmas with you. And we'll see you in a couple days.